when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. Now, I'm an author. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Alex Benayan. Alex is the only national best-selling business author under 30 in America. I could tell you about his book, The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launch Their Careers. You might know about his interviews with Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Larry King, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Jane Goodall, Jessica Alba, Quincy Jones, and more. The day before his freshman year final exams, Alex hacked the prices right, won a sailboat, sold it, and used the money to fund his larger-than-life adventures. Since then, Alex has been named to Forbes' 30 Under 30 list, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30, and been featured in major media, including The Washington Post, Fortune, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and NBC News. An acclaimed keynote speaker, Alex has presented the Third Door Framework to business conferences and corporate leadership teams around the world, including Apple, Google, Nike, IBM, Snapchat, Salesforce, and Disney, and so much more. But before Alex did any of those things, he was once the student body president of Beverly Hills High School, where I met him 10 years ago. So without further ado, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate you having me. Oh, man. Do you remember being student body president 10 yes, years I remember, ago? I remember my life. Yes. Oh, my God. I remember the first time I met you was you were arranging a gathering to go to Family Feud for the student body. And I, we didn't actually end up getting in, but uh, that was a good precursor to your later game show adventures. Wow. Do you remember that? We ended up going to In-N-Out instead. Yeah. I, I don't remember what happened that day, but I remember it not working out. Yeah. That that is my first memory of you. You giving me a ride to Family Feud. I remember that you were an incoming freshman in high school. I was 14 years old. That is crazy. So we always like to begin with a segment called Current Curiosity. So it's something recently that sparked your curiosity. So for me, I recently heard about this gadget called the Whoop, W-H-O-O-P. And I heard about it from Malcolm Gladwell on Bill Simmons' podcast. And it's this fitness tracker that I'm wearing now on my right wrist. And it's a lot like a Fitbit. But he was explaining it does a couple of things that are interesting. So LeBron, originally LeBron James and all these big athletes were using it to track their recovery and sleep. So what they realized was LeBron is not necessarily more talented than his peers, but biologically he recovers faster. So if him and his peers did the same exact workout, LeBron would be at maybe 82% recovery and his peers might be at 50. And I thought this was super fascinating. And so I just looked into it more and it seemed cool enough. So like, let me give it a shot. So I recently got it and now they've come out with a model where it's not just for athletes anymore. It used to be prohibitively expensive, like $500. And now they have a subscription model. So I looked into it and one of the things I think is super fascinating is how it quantifies your recovery, but also sleep. So it has this thing called the sleep coach that tells you how much sleep you need and when you should be in bed by. So not just the hours, but the actual time frame you should be in bed by uh, to either get by, if you just need to get by tomorrow, to perform, or if you want a peak performance. So what athletes were realizing were, for example, if they flew to another city, that affected their recovery. 
So if somebody's running a marathon, what they might do is get to that city a day or two earlier to give their body that time to recover. And even just thinking about it now with you, if you had the luxury of giving a keynote and getting there a day or two earlier or seeing how that affects your recovery or even seeing how much a keynote drains you because you can see body strain. So I just thought it was super interesting and I'm not an elite athlete, but it's cool to know like, hey, I don't feel well. Oh yeah, my recovery is not great. I probably shouldn't do an intense workout. I'd rather not be sick this weekend. So my current curiosity right now is the whoop. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Hmm. It's sort of been like for the past like year or two, which is stand-up comedy. Like I'm really obsessed with just watching like as much stand-up comedy as possible. It's just to me the greatest art form. It's just incredible. Um, it's sort of like to me, I think it's like our generation's version of like Plato and Aristotle. You know, I was watching, you know, the new Seth Meyers one last night and he's pretty you know, good. It's fantastic, it. yeah. remarkable. And, you know, I'm just thinking like, this is the best thing on parenting uh, fatherhood I've ever seen. You know, everyone who's about to be a dad for the first time needs to watch this. And it's just really interesting as, you know, different media and mediums change. Stand up comedy is becoming this like last, almost like the final frontier of being able to speak like really hard direct truths yeah but because it's done comedically you can get away with saying shit that you can't necessarily a either say or b that people care to hear because if you took all of his advice on fatherhood in a stand-up special and wrote in a book no one would actually read that because it's boring but you do it through the lens of comedy and it's entertaining but you're still able to get these truths across so I see, you know, Jerry Seinfeld as a philosopher who so happens to do it through comedy. Um, and I just love the art of making people laugh. It's like, yeah, it's the greatest thing. You know, it's a drug that has no side effects. It's really nice. Who's your um, favorite stand-up? If you have one. Definitely Seinfeld by yeah. far. You know, it's like saying who's your favorite basketball player. If you yeah. don't say Jordan, you know, something wrong with you. You know, I definitely think it's Seinfeld. You know, of our, yeah. of our generation. Sure. You know, I'm not going in all the way back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love Seinfeld a lot and I love not just first comedy. I love, you know, his writing. I love his interviews. I, you know, I just love everything about him. So I want to, I want to take it back to several years ago when, uh, we've actually both been on the prices, right? But I want to talk about <laughs> when you've been on the prices, right? And I want to know about what that, what that day was like. And just tell me, take me through that, that, that day. So I was a freshman in college and I had a dream of writing, the, you know, this book I was dreaming of reading. And what I wanted to do was interview the world's most successful people and figure out when they were just starting out how they did it. And I didn't have the money to fund the journey. And when I was sort of thinking about how am I going to get this money to go, you know, because I wanted to interview people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And I didn't have the money to go travel to interview all these people. So I was thinking, how am I going to get this money? And one day I'm in the library the day before two days before final exams and I see someone offering free tickets to the price is right. And I end up pulling an all nighter, but not studying for finals. I said, I hack the price is right. And I go on the next day and I sort of pull off this, you know, ridiculous strategy and I end up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded my book. And that's really how the journey set off. 
at the time on that day, you asked how it felt, you know, it's sort of like the first time you do anything, you don't really know how it's going to go. I definitely had this crazy strategy. And by the way, when I say hacked, it was less, you know, Einstein and more Forrest Gump, but I definitely had a strategy. You know, I studied how the show worked. I studied, you know, how the casting producer works. I studied, you know, really, because what I figured out is the hard part was getting onto the show. Um, so, uh, dumbfounded might be a good feeling to describe how that felt every step of the way. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And if anyone wants to read about it more, it's in the book. And if you still don't believe it, actually go to the price is right and try it. Cause it works. I can tell you from my own experience, the way Alex hacked it, it proves it's not a completely random process. And I remember when I, I when I was going in, I texted you before. I was like, "Hey, I'm I'm going in." And he's just, you were just like, "Do exactly what I did. You'll be fine." And I remember I just acted like the craziest version of myself because I never knew who was watching in line, if any of the producers were watching. So I was just completely crazy. And then when we finally got the stand, the producer actually asked me the same question he asked you when I told him I was a student at USC. He said, "You must not have time to watch the show." And uh, he's like, what's your favorite game? I, I bet you don't have time to watch the show. What, can you name one game? Like, what's your favorite game? And I was like, and I just went crazy. And I said, the only game I could actually think of, the bargain game. I was like, it's in my blood. Bargaining is in my blood. And I was just wild. And then when we got in the studio, it was me and a couple of my friends. And I remember they put up cue cards with your name on it if you're chosen to go up. The first card, which means the person who tested the best and Stan's eyes for TV, the person they absolutely, you know, want to make sure it goes up. They put up my name and I had never been on the show. So I, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, oh, did I lose my wallet? Like, do they need me to come up? Did I drop something? <laughs> and then if you actually watch the episode, the camera pans around for a few seconds because I don't get up for a few seconds. And uh, it was just, it was crazy not only to hear about that journey, but like so many of the principles you talk about in the third door, if somebody actually goes and practices it, it turns out to be true. <laughs> so I'm wondering, once you have this money to start your mission, you have, to, you have to kind of hunker down. You have to write emails. You have to reach out to people. And I'm wondering, where do you begin? I know you had that conversation with your friends of, you know, who are the people we would like to learn from? So once you have that list, what do you go and do? I think it's important to know and it's important for me to remind myself because, you know, as I do other things in life, I have to remember that it wasn't a straight, obvious, step-by-step thing. I think a lot of people are always looking for that, you know, what are the 10 steps or, you know, I'm speaking, you know, personally, that's what I wanted to know. Right. And that was my frustration. You know, I wanted I was reading these books, you know, telling you the 10 steps to do this or the 10 keys to do that. And then I was trying to start my own thing, you know, writing the third door and there were no steps and there was no, you know, there was no obvious what, you know, path. And I think that's where most people actually give up. They're like this, you know, they set out, they have the courage, like I'm going to do it. And then they get there and they're in the middle of the desert and there's, you know, no, signs pointing you which direction to go and you sort of call it quits um yeah what did i do i don't know i you sort of have to have like the courage every morning to just wake up and try and to ask yourself what's the 
best use of my time today? And most of the time you're going to be wrong answering that question, but you get better with it with time. Um, and you do the wrong things, you know, pain and rejection in a way is the only real signpost you have when you're trying to start something new, whether it's creative or entrepreneurial or, you know, business, if you're not getting rich and I actually think I, you know, I have friends who are, you know, if you're, you know, in LA or New York, there's a lot of people who are the children of really successful people. And because they have doors open for them because of, you know, where they come from, they actually don't get the benefit of learning from rejection and failure as early as people who didn't have that. Um, so as much as I wished in my process that things would have, uh, I could have had something to grease the wheels to make the process easier. That's how I learned things from thinking I knew how to go and I would go forward and then I'd get hit in the face with rejection and then I would have to recalibrate. And I've heard you talk about how in the face of rejection or just in general, when you're working on something, challenges come up, rejections come up and how important it is to be kind to yourself. And like you've mentioned in the past, so much of the business books that are out there and the philosophies that are preached are just kind of 24 seven. You have to be working at your goal. And I've heard you talk about it's okay to get ice cream. It's okay to like take a break. And so I'm wondering in the face of rejection, could you tell us about how you were kind to yourself and the things I, I you wasn't right. But over time you, you learned that skill, right? Yeah. It took like seven years. Yeah. So now, now on the other end of it, when you are in the middle of things that are challenging, whether it's, you know, a keynote that you you're working on or whatever it is, how do you know, okay, you know what? It's time to take a break. Like, let me, like, I'm, I need to go take a walk right now. Pain. Yeah. No, I'm serious. I don't, I, I don't get a memo in my email saying it's time to, you know, I don't have a Apple watch notification right. saying you, you know, no, just look, if you're feeling good, keep going. If you need a break, take a break. Yeah. And learning to listen to your body, to listen to your emotions is, uh, what's funny is, you know, it's a natural instinct, but then you get trained by society to ignore those sensations. You go to school, you have the energy, you have the sensation to like get up and move around, but you're not allowed to. So you have to learn how to suppress your instincts and suppress your inner voice. And it actually takes a relearning process in adulthood to learn how to get back in touch with that. That's deep. Yeah. Cause I, it, it's funny. Cause when I think about when I first met you at Beverly, I feel like you were a Ferrari engine, but stuck in like a 1980s Camry. Like, <laughs> it's a very nice compliment. Like you just had so much energy and were so ready to go, but you were stuck in this vehicle in this surrounding that was kind of confining you. Yeah. That's why I got in trouble a lot in school. <laughs> so, okay. So you, you deal with rejection and it, over time you learn, this, this is something that you took, as you said, seven years to learn. Be kind to yourself. And I think what something that helps too is you have such a good support system, right? You had, you had supportive friends along the way who encouraged you. And you also, you've talked a lot about working with Cal Fussman, who's a great storyteller, great interviewer. And I'd love to know more about what that process was like, because he's in it with you too. Like as you're getting rejected, you probably told him like, Hey, this is the latest. And I'm wondering what's that working relationship like the mentorship. And you've talked about how you worked on him. 
134 times on the Bill Gates chapter. That's, that's a lot of work. So if you could walk me through the process. Mm. Which process exactly? Let's start with the collaboration with Cal. It started out very simply as, you know, I met Larry King and Larry King said, talk to this guy. He's my best friend. And I talked to this guy and that's how the relationship started. Um, so originally it just started off as this is Larry King's guy. That was our first couple meetings. Um, and then sort of started to dawn on me that, okay, this guy also is a really good writer too. And is, you know, but Cal and I didn't start, I don't think he read anything I wrote until maybe like a month into us knowing each other. So it took time and everything, it started very, very slowly. So at what point did you guys realize that it would be more than just occasionally chatting here and there and that it's something that you guys would work on more actively, like you wrote in the book, two or three nights a week? It, you know, those things are only clear in hindsight. At the time, I would ask him to meet and he would say, okay. And I'd be like, oh my God, this is great. And then I'd ask him to meet again and he said, okay. And I'm like, this is amazing. And, you know, you don't, you know, it's sort of like... Yeah, it's it's similar to also with the third door. I didn't know like when I was starting this would be like the my life thing that you know I'd be working on for nine years. Right. All I knew is it felt like good in the moment. You can like all you can sort of do is just check in with yourself on a day to day and sort of follow that thread of enthusiasm. Um, and with Cal, I just got lucky that he kept agreeing to meet with me, dude. You know. I'd say 99% of people who I reached out to at that point in my life did not want us, you know, yeah. to take the meeting. So I was just grateful that Cal kept saying yes. And I was listening to the podcast you had with Cal. And that was so super fun to listen to. And I encourage anyone to check it out. And what was so nice was he was saying when he first saw your writing, he was like, oh, this guy needs some help. And he was kind enough to help you just get the storytelling down as well, among other things. But I remember you, you were also looking to other sources like Harry Potter. I remember you were studying Harry Potter as just a exhibition and storytelling, right? Can you talk about how, you know, the other sources of inspiration and wisdom you look to as you were writing your own narrative? That was the biggest one as an example of uh, what my bar was for the best storytelling. I wasn't really interested. First of all, I love Harry Potter just as a reader. Yeah. Second of all, my intention for the third door was not to write a highbrow literary work. My goal was to write an engaging, relatable, um, fun, enjoyable, on the edge of your seat work. That's Harry Potter. Just, you know, you can look at it objectively by the numbers there's no story that has captured the fascination of you know the past century more than harry potter um so that was my benchmark for you know what i was you know so I, yeah i would read harry potter not only was i reading it for and not only was i reading the series for enjoyment during that time in my life i kept book number one in my backpack at all times so if i ever got writer's block i would open to a random page read a paragraph and I'm like, ah, oh, that's how you do it. What do you think JK Rowling, you, you don't have to name all the things, but just maybe what are, what are some takeaways you got 
from just breaking when you were looking at it analytically? Uh, she did a great... Yeah, there's a lot of a lot things, of things yeah. I'll tell you what I needed the help with the most because I wasn't creating my... You know, I'm nonfiction, so I wasn't creating a world of characters with this and plot twists and stuff like that. Uh, what I needed was help with how to... Okay, so this is the thing. With... Oh, I've never had to think about this. Good question. Two things. One is I needed help and inspiration of how to make a reader feel like they're in the room. You would think the way to do that is to describe everything in the room, but that's not true. If I describe, Ben, you and I are sitting in a room right now. If I described everything in the room to the listener who's listening to this podcast, they would be completely overwhelmed if I described everything. What they need to know is different. And being able to do that in a visual way, do they need to know what the room smells like for the purpose of this pot? No, they don't know. Um, do they need to know what kind of chairs we're in? No. Do they need to know how close we are? Yes, that's important. If we're sitting on the other sides of the room from each other, that's really awkward. Right. No, we're not. We're sitting pretty close. And yeah. Right? It takes a level of understanding. What are you trying to do? Then how can you use... You know, and Cal would teach me that too. Cal would say like the amateur writer would say, you know, let's say they're interviewing George Clooney and at lunch, they would say, and then George cut into his salmon as he said to me. Cal would say that is the stupidest thing, but 90% of writers do it because they want to show that they were at lunch with George Clooney. No, but what does the salmon have to do with it? Unless, you know, George is talking about the death of his father and Instead of answering the question, you know, he stabs his fork into a salmon that tells you something. So that's one thing that I needed to learn from J.K. Rowling was just her ability to, you know, when you read Harry Potter, it's like this movie playing in your head. It's not, it doesn't feel like a book. So that's number one. Number two is she's very good at pacing her prose. She actually, I think, does it better in the later books. Um, her use of punctuation of sentence structure to create a speed and velocity. There are some points in Harry Potter where it just feels so slow. That's intentional. There's parts that rip through that you read 30 pages in a matter of minutes. It's intentional. Um, and I wanted the third door to have the same level of, uh, I wanted the pacing to be part of the structure, not a, accidental now that's hard when you're doing interviews and you're doing nonfiction because you have to first of all follow the reality of what happened and then you also want to put the pacing on top of it so it's tricky um so those are the two big things that i had to that i kept turning back to harry potter looking for i think it's so awesome that you had that source of inspiration that you could look to whenever you were stuck because i think that's that's a tricky part of the creative process. I write and it's, I often get to a point where I think, okay, I think I need to take a step back or I need to look at this YouTube video or read this script or whatever it is, whatever it gets the juices going. And I'm wondering like, as far as recharging goes, whether it's a source of inspiration or something else, what did you find that helped you just recharge? And I know meditation is one of them. Because you introduced me to our teacher. Light, shout out to Light Watkins. Yeah, I just believe in doing things that are fun. 
Um, I know it's like a very controversial <laughs> belief. Um, yeah, I don't really have these like, you know, best practices of how to recharge. <laughs> you just did something that completely took me back. Uh, for people listening to this, Ben just leaned over to check the <laughs> the recording equipment. I, through every interview for the third door, would do that midway through the interview. And it would be the scariest. You have to because you just had your phone, right? You had your or you had no, your no, one no. recorder. Yeah, I had a recorder. But if but I you, had a recorder and a phone in my pocket, yes. just in case of emergency. But you still wanted the good recording, right? And you'd understand the fear of you know. It took you two years to interview Bill, to get an interview from Bill Gates, and you're sitting in the interview, and about like halfway through the interview, the thought always comes: I hope this is. Recording. I hope I hit the right button and you lean forward and there's like for three <laughs> seconds a possibility that you're not recording this. <laughs> and, I, you're, and you're always recording yeah. it. Every time you check it, it's always, you know, the red light is always on. But I remember we were talking and you said, this is literally the only proof I have that I was with Bill Gates. Like I don't have photos. I don't have anything. This is it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So do fun stuff. That's a great lesson. I think that that can be so overlooked. Um, but I have heard you say, I do, I do want to ask you specifically about meditation because I have heard you, I was listening to one of your keynotes. That was a life thing yeah. though, not yeah. a writing thing. It sure. accidentally became a writing thing. Yeah. And it was actually, it's the opposite for me. It's not a recharge. It was like a uh, priming. Sure. Yeah. I would guess the difference is when you do it. Sure. I meditate before I write, not after I hit a brick wall. Yes. So you have, you, you kind of, after, you know, a while, you probably have your routines as you're writing. So whether it's like, you know, I'll wake up around this time, I'll write for this time, I'll take a lunch break around this time. If you have complete autonomy over your day or your week, and you don't always, right? You have doctor's appointments, you have speeches you got to give, you have commitments that come up. But if you have generally autonomy over your day or your week, when you were writing your book and doing some public speaking, how would you try to structure it to kind of get the most out of your day or your week as well? Yeah, my answer for this is twofold. Number one, I think all questions like this about morning routines and writing routines and all should be uh, preambled with this worked for me because of my unique circumstances. Right. This is not prescriptive. Right. But no fucking book on morning routines starts off like that. They tell yes. you, this is how the successful people did it and how you should too. That's the implicit right. message. Um, now, the benefit of you know studying other people's morning routines, if you're interested in that, is you can get some ideas, try it out for yourself, and see if it works. Right. If it's not working for you, maybe stop doing it. You know, that's yeah. the whole point to find something that works for you. Um, for me, what I started finding, what worked for me while writing the third door was because there was different parts of the third door. There was researching the interviews, trying to get interviews, trying to get the book deal, writing the book, marketing the book, you know. So I assume you're asking just on writing the book, writing the narrative. Yes. Because every one of those actually interesting enough had a whole different day-to-day -day sure. structure. When it came to writing, writing was the most head down, like, you know, you got to, um, 
for lack of a better word, just grind it out. You're just going back. It, it's the most like manual labor, except it's, you know, the opposite of manual labor. <laughs> Not doing anything other than lifting your finger, but it's the most, uh, the rhythmic, rhythmically. Right. It's the most, writing is very um, construction worker rhythm of to do, to do, to do, to do. It's not this romantic, you know, log cabin, you know, it's very much do, 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 do. Um, on occasion, you'll be at dinner and an idea will, of a sentence or will come to you and you'll write it on a napkin. But, you know, that's frosting on the cake. Um, my personal one, you know, I would wake up. Um, I would not meditate in my house. I would save the meditation. Drive to my office at this little tiny writing office with like, you know, one or two desks in it and books. That was pretty much all that was in there. I would drive to the office building, park my car. I would probably be there around like 7 a.m., 7, 7.30. Um, that would be like my ideal time to be there. Because um, I liked it. I liked the whole building being silent. I like no one being there. It was this like magical time where no one's going to interrupt you because I'm very easily distracted. Um, so I'd get there, park, meditate in my car, but on the passenger seat, I would have my yellow legal pad with either the thing I needed. So every morning that like, I don't think I've ever explained it in this much detail, but there was like, uh, a couple, there would be like two pr productive writing slots of the day. My like first thing in the morning writing slot, 7.30. And then there would be like my afternoon writing slot of like, you know, you have lunch, you talk on the phone with some friends, uh, like 2.33-ish in the afternoon, which essentially were my two meditation times. Meditate in the morning, meditate in the afternoon. Because for me, my brain needs to be like completely quiet and still for me to create my at my best. Are you turning off your phone during this time? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Um airplane mode, yeah. Yeah. But my first morning one would be the best quality work and the second afternoon would be the second best quality work. And I would the night before assign what the mornings so every night before, I would know tomorrow morning's – the day ends for a writer when you, you're you dead, right? Right. Because if you're going, you're going, right? If you're yeah. going, you're going. Right. When, when you – my dad says when you have the click, ride it. When you have the click, just don't stop. Right. It's never really happened to me. Well, it happens every now and then. But if yeah. it's like 11 p.m. and you're still It'll, on fire, yeah. why Go. are you going to bed? Yeah. You know? Yeah. The day for the writer ends and you just, you're out of it. Um, now you keep going even if you're out of it. But at a certain time, if you're out of it and it's late and it's dinner time, you go home. Um, but I would always know, okay, tomorrow morning I have to do this. I have to write this scene. I have to edit this chapter. So you had a goal going into the day where when you, I knew you the, had intentions, I should say. Yeah, I knew the one most important, if I could only get one thing done, 
what's the most important writing thing to what's the most important either scene to write or thing to edit were your intentions quantitative like a page count or no 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 time, I, i've never done wise. the whole um 400 pages a day four sure. bad pages a day you know i know a lot of writers love that i that wasn't me um, but it was based on a scene, right? So you weren't saying, let me spend two hours. You were saying, I, my goal, my goal today is to finish this scene, whether it takes yeah. 20 minutes or two hours. Correct. Yeah. I think that's so important is the, just moving things even an inch forward every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's what it would be. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew it was like a, you know, some people said four pages to me, it was almost like a bite size. I wasn't like, I'm going to edit these 50 pages first thing I'm, no, something like manageable that I knew that I could actually accomplish. Now, not well, but I could tackle. Yeah. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, yeah, it was normally, I'm going to start, I'm going to write the opening pages of this chapter. That was sort of what I'll tell myself. Did you do most of your writing in your office? If you had, obviously you're traveling a lot, but ideal world, you're doing most of your writing in your office. <laughs> do you know what's funny? Actually... Most of the raw material of the third door was written in a car parked in my office building. Interesting. Or in my car parked at a park. There's a park close to my office, which yeah. is where I would do my afternoons. Got it. Did you find that you... <laughs> no one knows did this. Your, did your... Sounds so creepy. I wrote all my <laughs> book in my car. Did you? Were you doing voice to text or were you typing? No. Neither. Neither. Handwriting hand on a legal the pad. The entire third door first draft was written by hand. That is old school. Wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. Did you find that you're doing your writing in the same places that you were doing your thinking? Um, no. No, the thinking happens everywhere else. Interesting. No, I'm not sitting in my car thinking. Right. No, I'm thinking throughout the whole day. I'm sitting in the car meditating and then writing. I have so much more to ask you, but uh, I, we, we can continue for hours. But I, I do want to uh, be respectful of your time and wrap up. So I have five fun questions for you. What was the last book you finished reading? Sick in the Head by Judd Apatow. What's your favorite TV show? The Office. What's your favorite holiday? Yom Kippur. What's the best birthday celebration you've ever had? Oh, there's some, been some good ones. I went, I think it was last year or the year before I went with some of my best friends to Santa Barbara. It was really beautiful. And we're creating a Spotify playlist with song recommendations from each guest of what's your jam. It could be any song, but what's your jam, Alex? God's Plan by Drake. It was so cool to just even get this snippet of your process. Thank, Thank you, you, Alex. Thank you, man. It was fun.